This is Our American Stories, and we're playing this song and the song you just heard because, well, Kenny Rogers is singing that song, and that's not the Kenny America came to know, but that was Kenny Rogers. Well, that was the early Kenny Rogers. And we're going to spend some time talking about his life because on this day in history, Kenny Rogers was born in 1938. And as always, our This Days in History are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to study all the things that matter in life, the arts, U.S. history, philosophy. It's all there, all the beautiful things that matter in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will get to you. Go to hillsdale.edu and sign up for, well, almost... A dozen and a half great online courses. Kenny Rogers has charted more than 120 hit singles across various music genres, topped the country and pop album charts for more than 200 individual weeks in the United States alone, and has sold over, get this, 100 million records worldwide, making him one of the best-selling music artists of all time. He was voted the favorite singer of all time in a 1986 joint poll by readers of both USA Today and People. And those are America's newspapers and magazines. His favorite hit is probably yours too, The Gambler. He also acted in a variety of movies and TV shows, most notably the title roles in Kenny Rogers as The Gambler. He is also a co-founder of the restaurant chain Kenny Rogers Roasters. But Kenneth Ray Rogers was born humbly in Houston, Texas. On August 21st, 1938, the fourth of eight children born to Lucille Lois, a nurse's assistant, and Edward Floyd Rogers, a carpenter. Here's Kenny Rogers on growing up in the projects of Houston. The interesting thing is when you're broke and you live in the projects, you don't realize you're broke. It's only when you get a little older and you're exposed to wealth that you realize you don't have it. And I remember when I used to walk to school, I would walk through one of the wealthiest parts of the city and something that stuck with me that even when I was older still sticks with me, they used to have automatic sprinklers in their yard. And I thought that was so cool. And I kept saying, someday I'm going to have automatic sprinklers. Kenny answers the question, did you ever think, why don't I have that? No, I never said that because, I mean, I knew that was a wealthy part of town. I knew I didn't come from there. So I think that as I, I we, we didn't have much, but my mom was a very strong Christian. She went to church. She took us to church three times a week. Mm. Our God had a good shot at our family. And, and my dad had his problems, but we were a happy family. I had four brothers and three sisters and plenty of kids to play with. Here's Kenny on the fine line between ambition and selfishness. Well, I, I think that it made me determined to do something 
But I also think there's a fine line between being driven and being selfish. And I think I became selfish. And that's why some of my marriages didn't work. I was gone six months out of the year. When you have a chance to be something and someone said, do I regret doing it? I regret the people I hurt on the way up. But if I hadn't done it, I could have been working at McDonald's now. Kenny married when he was 19 after getting his girlfriend pregnant. Money was a struggle, so he took a sales job to make ends meet. But he got fired because all of his focus and time was on making music. Here's Kenny. Well, my mom told me when I was a kid, find a job you love and you'll never work a day in your life. And, and to, you know, to the day she died, she said that boy never worked. All he ever did was sing. I don't think she saw the business side. She saw me doing it because I enjoyed it. But she told me, she said, be happy where you are. Never be content to be there. Because if you're not happy where you are, you'll never be happy. I mean, it's hard, but it's not work because I was doing something that I wanted to do. I could get out anytime I wanted to. I mean, now I could quit if I wanted to, but I choose to be there. Someone said the other day, do you still enjoy it? I said, you know, getting there is not as much fun as it used to be. But once I'm there, there's no place I'd rather be. Indeed. And Kenny's first mainstream success was with his band, First Edition. The song Just Dropped In was a hit in 1968 and was also featured in the Coen Brother film, The Big Lebowski. Here's Kenny on what makes his songs so popular. Interestingly enough, that song was written by a guy I went to high school with, and he played it for me when I was in the new Christie Minstrels, and I said, I want to record that. And he said, I can't let you have it because Sammy Davis Jr. has it on hold, which I thought was pretty interesting in itself. But when I went with the first edition, he said, you can do it if you want. And I just always believed, I think great songs make it to radio. And that's always been my strength is picking music. Every song I've ever recorded, I picked. And there's no question I've had ref- been referenced by other people. But I make the final decision. And they all fall into one of two categories. One is either ballads that say what every man would like to say and every woman would like to hear. If you look through the She Believes in Me, You Decorated My Life Through right. the Years, Lady. And the others are story songs that have social comment. Just dropped in, of course. <laughs> I'm not sure where that falls. But if you look at Ruby, Don't Take Your Love to Town, mm-hmm. it was about a mm-hmm. Vietnam War vet who came back, wanted to kill his wife. Uh, Ruben James was about a black man who raised a white child. Mm-hmm. Coward of the County is about a rape. And a lot of people don't know that. They sing along with it and they go, oh, my God, that's about a rape. Indeed. And when we come back, we're going to hear more from Kenny Rogers. But right now, let's take a listen to one of the many great and classic Kenny Rogers songs. More after these messages. This is Our American Story, celebrating the life of Kenny Rogers, born on this day in history. Baby, when I met you, there was peace unknown. I set out to get you with a fine-tooth comb. I was soft inside. There was something going on. You do something to me.
is Our American Stories, and you're listening to Kenny Rogers and Kim Carnes. And Kenny was just terrific when singing with other people. And so few great and world-class singers partner well with other singers. Kenny loved to let other singers shine, and his duets with Dolly Parton and Kim Carnes are some of the best duet singing you could hear between a man and a woman. And we were talking about Kenny's ballads, but he, he experimented with all kinds of musical genres. Here's Kenny on his musical influences and the secret to his success. Basically, I'm a country singer with a lot of other influences. You know, I started out as a kid listening to country music, but once I got into jazz, I met this guy who was blind and played piano, Bobby Doyle, and he said, I'll teach you to play bass. And I thought, okay, why? He said, because there's more demand for bad bass players than bad guitar players. (laughs) But he gave me such an education of music that it afforded me the opportunity to sing songs that weren't quite so country. I heard something somewhere, and I believe this with all my heart, that people are successful because someone believed in them and they didn't want to let that person down. And I think I've had people as I go through my life, Larry Butler, for one, that took me into the country music area. I was 40 years old, come out of a rock group. And everybody said, it'll never happen. And he said, but I have the right to hire him and I'm going to hire him. And he believed in me and I didn't want to let him down. And by the way, we hear this over and over again from artists. Over and over again, even athletes, remember Brett Favre, talking about those coaches who believed him, and he remembers it searing in his memory. As old as he'll ever get, he'll remember the people who gave him his shot. Despite initially being rejected by the country community, Kenny Rogers found his greatest success in Nashville. He was in his 40s. Here's how Kenny dealt with expectations that he would fail in Nashville. I never thought about them. I mean, I just figured this was my journey and I was going to find a way. You know, they said, you're too pop, you're too old, and and, uh, you have a beard and you have long hair and it's not going to happen. So, you know, I wrote a song called Sweet Music Man that was originally about Waylon Jennings because his wife had said that, all his band were enablers. They let him do whatever he wanted to do, and it broke her heart. Said, but when he starts singing, he's my sweet music man. And I just thought that was such a great statement. Mm-hmm. So I wrote this song, and the first half is all about Waylon. As I started writing the second half, it was about me. I mean, I, I re- it was very cathartic because it was you try to stay young, but the songs you've sung have all begun to come back on you. So I, the next day, I cut my hair, got rid of the glasses, took the earring out of my ear, and I became more real because I think we're all three people. I think I'm who I think I am, I'm who you think I am, and I'm who I really am. And the closer those three are together, the longer your career can last. Okay, look at Dolly Parton. She is what she presents. Waylon Jennings, Johnny Cash. You know, I knew my time was limited, and I talk about it here that anytime you're afraid to play with your image, your time is limited. So... I, you know, I just switched it up. Authenticity, always. In the end, it's what wins. Again, that's another recurring theme in everything we do. And it's the old great Oscar Wilde quote, be yourself, everyone else is taken. Kenny Rogers brought new influences into the country world, including R&B and soul. He collaborated with Lionel Richie. Here's how he convinced the country music establishment that this would work commercially. Well, I just explained to him that that country music is the white man's rhythm and blues. That's where the pain is. And I said, listen to what Lionel writes. He writes conversations. If you listen to Three Times a Lady and Still, it's two people talking. And I said, why would that not work in country music? He's just doing R&B tracks. Let me do his music. Ray Charles did it. And I said, let me do his songs, his lyrics, and put them to country tracks. Indeed, go to our Ray Charles, George on Our Mind 
story of a song because it's terrific. This is exactly how Ray Charles thought about the Hoagie Carmichael song. It was written as a pop standard in Tin Pan Alley. And he took it, this blues guy and this African-American recording artist, and he put some strings and some guitars behind it and turned it into a pop hit. A song is a song, and a great song is a great song. Here's Kenny on singer-songwriter Lionel Richie arriving in Las Vegas to play a song for Kenny to sing. As he sat down at the piano, Lionel said this to Kenny. Now, I have to tell you, I played this for the Commodores, and they rejected it. And I said, okay. So he goes, lady, da 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 That's all he had. And I said, how can they reject that word? I don't get it. You know, so I said, I want to do that. So we go in the studio to record it. I record the first verse. And I said, where's the second verse? He said, well, Lionel's in the toilet writing it right now. Lionel's in the toilet writing it now. That may be one of my favorite lines on Our American Stories. Kenny went on an incredible role in the late 70s and early 80s with songs like Lucille, Lady, Don't Fall in Love with a Dreamer, and his most well-known tune, The Gambler. Here's how he feels about those songs today. Is he sick of being the gambler guy? Oh, I love them. It's, that's artillery. You know, are you kidding? Who wouldn't want to have something like that? It was a, it's a career-making song. And it was, it was voted the greatest country song of all time. Yeah. And, you know, you have to love that. And you, when you perform, you're looking for those kinds of vehicles to go out with. You know what? I, I have this thing about performing. It's not important to me that anybody leaves the show saying he's the best singer I've ever heard. But it's important that everybody leaves saying I enjoyed that. And what's going to make them enjoying it is doing songs they know. So I went to see Ray Charles, who was my hero, mm-hmm. and he didn't do George on my mind. And I was so angry. So I decided I was never not going to do that. So I do every hit every night. I mean, I have no desire to go out and be truly innovative on stage and someone say, wow, I didn't know he could do that. That doesn't interest me. Well, it's about the audience, not him. And by the way, we had just seen Tom Petty not long ago, Jesse and I, and he was just ripping through the hits. And the only thing we were disappointed at is there's not enough time to do all of the hits. So he had to choose some and leave others out. Kenny Rogers admitted to People Magazine even about his plastic surgery. So has aging been hard for Kenny in this youth-oriented music industry? I had the money and I had the time, so I did it. I mean, that, it, those, are, those are the kind of crazy decisions I've made in my life. Someone would say, you know, your eyes are falling. Well, okay, let's go do them. i got nothing to do Tuesday, so <laughs> I'd go do it. And, and, and I enjoyed it. I, I didn't like the outcome of it. But at the same time, I look at myself and I say, I wonder what I'd look like if I hadn't done that. So I'm okay. <laughs> I'm okay. Kenny's been married five times. The first three divorces, he says, are 85% his fault. And he said this, quote, if, if success had been less important, I could have stayed with any one of them. So what's life like for Kenny Rogers today? There's a sustainability, you know, I, and I, I still contend that the longer it takes you to hit your peak, the longer your glide ratio down. Hmm. So in my case, it took me 20 years to be really successful. So I've got a 20-year glide ratio. If you go straight up, you come straight down. But, you know, I, I, I love what I'm doing, and I see no reason to quit. I, I've What I've done is moderated my schedule to the point that I'm home with my boys, I'm home with my wife, and when I work in and around Atlanta, they go with me. So they're a part of the success, you know. And I and I think that's the key is being able to put yourself in a position financially and mentally that what drives me is not my career now, but my family, but my family allows me my career. 
Well, so good that Kenny has his priorities. The life of Kenny Rogers, born on this day in history in 1938. And as always, our This Day in History is brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their terrific and free online courses. And we figured we'd end things with the song, well, the song that Kenny Rogers says he'll always play and the greatest song in the history of country music. Let's take a listen. On a warm summer's evening On a train bound for nowhere I met up with a gambler We were both too tired to sleep So we took turns staring Out the window at the darkness The boredom overtook us And he began to speak He said, son, I made my life Out of reading people's faces And knowing what the cards were by the way they held their eyes So if you don't mind saying I can see you're out of aces For a taste of your whiskey I'll give you some advice So I handed him my bottle And we drank down my last swallow Then he bummed a cigarette And asked me for a light And the night got deathly quiet Face lost all expression Said if you're gonna play the game Boy, you gotta learn to play it right You gotta know when to hold them Know when to fold them Know when to walk away Know when to run You never count your money When you're sitting at the table There'll be time enough for counting When the dealing's done This is Our American Stories, and Dr. Rick Rigsby is a San Francisco Bay Area native, an award-winning TV journalist. He followed his six-year television news career with his six-year graduate school stint, culminating with a Ph.D. from the University of Oregon. Graduate school was followed by two decades as a college professor, the last 14 years at Texas A&M University, where Rick also served as character coach and chaplain for the Aggies football team. Dr. Rigsby is the author of Lessons from a Third Grade Dropout, the story of timeless common-sense wisdom learned from his father. He was invited to speak at the California State University Maritime Commencement in Northern California. Parts of his speech have since gone viral, and you will understand why in a minute, but some of the greatest parts were left out. Not today. Let's begin with Rigsby's opening remarks. I won't be long. We have a lot of activities. Some of them will go into the late hours of the night. But I come from a predominantly black family. I don't know if y'all can tell that or not. And I happen to be an ordained minister. Now that's a lethal combination when it comes to time. Give Big Daddy some chicken wings, I'll talk to you all day long. Yes, sir. But in the words of King Henry VIII, as he spoke to each of his six wives, 
I won't keep you long, but I will be very brief and on point. I promise you that. Brief and on point is always something we want to hear at a commencement. Let's dive headfirst into Rigsby's talk to these college grads. You won't ever receive the kind of knowledge that you've received during your time here. But I wish that you would couple that knowledge with something else. Wisdom. Wisdom from a mother. Wisdom from a father, a grandmother, a grandfather, an uncle, an aunt, a friend. Wisdom from somewhere. That, that combination will keep you centered regardless of the turbulence of the sea. It's not about making a nice impression. It's about making an impact. It's about doing your best. So how do we make an impact? I learned how to make an impact from the wisest person I ever met in my life, a third grade dropout. Wisest and dropout in the same sentence is rather oxymoronic, like jumbo shrimp. Mm-hmm. Like fun run. Ain't nothing fun about it. Like Microsoft works. Y'all don't hear me. I used to say like country music, but I've lived in Texas so long. I, I love country music now. I, that, yeah. I hunt, I fish, I have cowboy boots and cowboy. Y'all, I'm a black neck, redneck. Do you hear what I'm saying to you? No longer oxymoronic for me to say country music. And it's not oxymoronic for me to say third grade and dropout. That third grade dropout, the wisest person I ever met in my life, who taught me to combine knowledge and wisdom to make an impact, was my father. And let's hear more about his dad. My daddy grew up in the piney woods of East Texas, a little town called Huntsville, Texas. After World War II was over, my father decided to be the only one in his family to migrate west. And in the 1950s, he found his way to the San Francisco Bay Area, fell in love with a forklift driver. My mother was a bad mamma jamma, let me tell you right now, baby. <laughs> Didn't need a man, he was just there. <laughs> My mother was a forklift driver over at the Benicia Arsenal, uh, where they would, uh, she would provide the services to support uh, the war efforts during World War II. In the 50s, my mother and father get married, and they migrate to this area. My father gets a job as a cook, a simple cook. Wisest man I ever met in my life. Left school in the third grade to help out on the family farm, but just because he left school doesn't mean his education stopped. Mark Twain once said, I've never allowed my schooling to get in the way of my education. My father taught himself how to read, taught himself how to write, decided in the midst of Jim Crowism, as America was breathing the last gasp of the Civil War, my father decided he was going to stand and be a man. Not a black man, not a brown man, not a white man, but a man. He literally challenged himself to be the best that he could all the days of his life. Dr. Rigsby is not done talking about his father. I have four degrees. My brother is a judge. We're not the smartest ones in our family. It's a third grade dropout daddy. A, a third grade dropout daddy who was quoting Michelangelo when he was a cook at Cal Maritime, saying to us, boys, I won't have a problem if you aim high and miss. 
but I'm going to have a real issue if you aim low and hit. A, a country mother quoting Henry Ford saying, if you think you can or if you think you can't, you're right. I learned that from a third grade drop. Simple lessons. Lessons like these. Son, don't judge people. Son, I've worked at Cal Maritime. You know I've been all over the world. I've seen good and bad in every shade. Don't judge people. The tendency of a person is to walk away from somebody that's different from them. You stay there and you get to know them. Never judge. Then he dropped Jonathan Swift on me, who said vision is the ability to see the invisible. Don't judge. Another lesson from this third grade dropout. Son, you'd rather be an hour early than a minute late. We never knew what time it was at my house because the clocks were always ahead. My father had the breakfast and lunch shift here at the academy. He had to be at work at five o'clock. We lived on tennis, we lived on Louisiana Street, 15 minutes away. My mother said for nearly 30 years, my father left the house at 3.45 in the morning. One day she asked him, why daddy? He said, maybe one of my boys will catch me in the act of excellence. I wanna share two things with you. Aristotle said, you are what you repeatedly do. Therefore, excellence ought to be a habit not an act. Don't ever forget that. The other thing I want to share with you is Harvard Business Review, September 2004. The article is titled Deep Smarts. Here's the thesis. Lecturing, what our universities are based upon, is the worst kind of teaching method, usually. <laughs> Present company excluded. <laughs> that if you want to get the intended message across, model the behavior. My daddy, a third grade dropout, a cook, was modeling excellence for his boys, combining academic knowledge and old school wisdom. That's what makes an impact. Don't judge, model excellence. Those were lessons one and two. It's time for lesson three from Rick's daddy. Lesson number three, be kind to people. He always told us kind deeds are never lost. I get to do a lot of NFL chapels. You see some amazing things with those National Football League players. You see guys that can bench press 200, 300 pounds 20 times. You see folks that are huge, that can run like a deer. You see folks from a flat-footed position jump 40 inches, 40-inch vertical leap. I even saw a white guy do it once. But the point... <laughs> you know what stops me in my tracks? When I see one of those rich folks show kindness. It literally stops the world. George Washington Carver said, when common people do common things in uncommon ways, they command the attention of the world. I just described your grandmother. I know you're tough. I know you're seaworthy, but always remember to be kind. Always. Don't ever forget that. Never embarrass mama. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If mama ain't happy, Ain't nobody happy. If daddy ain't happy, don't nobody care. But, you know, I can tell you. And when we come back, more from Dr. Rick Rigsby. And he's the author of Lessons from a Third Grade Dropout. Boy, he's talking about his dad. He's talking to the California State University Maritime Commencement in Northern California. More of his story and his daddy's story here on Our American Story.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we return to Dr. Rick Rigsby's Lessons from a Third Grade Dropout commencement speech at Cal State University Maritime. And by the way, we do commencement speeches during the season, but also all year round, because so many good commencement speeches are floating out there. We occasionally even do really terrible ones, too. But let's return to Rigsby's. And here, the good doctor kicks it up a couple of notches. Next lesson. Lesson from a cook over there in the galley. Son, make sure your servant's towel is bigger than your ego. Ego is the anesthesia that deadens the pain of stupidity. Y'all might have a relative in mind you want to send that to. Let me say it again. Ego is the anesthesia that deadens the pain of stupidity. Pride is the burden of a foolish person. You'll never be a great shipmate. You'll never be a great executive. You'll never be a great teammate if it's all about you. John Wooden coached basketball at UCLA for a living, but his calling was to impact people. And with all those national championships, guess what he was found doing in the middle of the week? Going into the cupboard, grabbing a broom, and sweeping his own gym floor. You want to make an impact? Find your broom. Every day of your life, you find your broom. Let's continue. Final lesson. Son, if you're going to do a job, do it right. I know grammatically that's not correct. It ought to be do it well, but I like that old school ghetto kind (laughs) of do it the right way. I'm thinking about a little boy in Los Angeles. All he wants to do is play little league baseball. His mother can't even afford to buy him a glove. And he eventually plays Little League, and he's really good. And he's so good he gets a scholarship to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. And he's so good he gets drafted by the San Diego Padres. And he's so good he helps the St. Louis Cardinals win a World Series. Twelve years ago when Ozzie Smith walked into the Hall of Fame, he said during his induction speech, and in part I quote word for word, he said, I've always been told how average I can be, but I want to tell you something. I stand here before you, before all of these people, not listening to those words, but telling myself every single day to be the best that I can be. Good enough isn't good enough if it can be better, and better isn't good enough if it can be best. Rigsby concludes this last lesson with a story. Back in the 70s, to help me make this point, let me introduce you to someone. I met the finest woman I'd ever met in my life. Mm-hmm. Back in my day, we'd have called her a brick house. I was going to that great academic institution in the North, Chico State. Y'all don't know what I'm talking about. Probably studying really hard. Let me just put it to you like this. I haven't always been a preacher, if you understand what I'm saying. This woman was the finest woman I'd ever seen in my life. There's just one little problem. Back then, ladies didn't like big old linemen. The blind side hadn't come out yet. (laughs) They they like quarterbacks and running backs. Any former quarterbacks or running backs here? Raise your hands. Why, a couple of you? Punks. Anyway, so we're at this dance, and I find out her name is Trina Williams from Lompoc, California. And and we're all dancing, and we're we're just, just excited. And I decide in the middle of dancing with her that I would ask her for a phone number. She, Trina was the first one. Trina was the only woman in college who gave me her real telephone number. 
The next day, we walked to Baskin and Robbins ice cream parlor. My friends couldn't believe it. This has been 40 years ago, and my friends still can't believe it. We go on a second date, and a third date, and a fourth date. Mm-hmm. We drive from Chico to Vallejo so that she could meet my parents. My father meets her, my daddy, my hero. He meets her, pulls me to the side and says, is she psycho? But anyway, <laughs> we go together for a year, two years, three years, four years. By now, Trina's a senior in college. I'm still a freshman, but I'm working some things out. <laughs> I'm so glad I graduated in four terms. Nixon, Ford, Carter, Reagan. So now it's, it's, it's time to propose, so I talk to her girlfriends, and it's California, it's in the 70s, so it has to be outside, have to have a candle, and you have to have, you know, some chocolate. Listen, I'm from the hood, I had a bottle of Boone's Farm wine, that's what I had. She said yes! That was the key. I married the most beautiful woman I'd ever seen in my life. Y'all ever been to a wedding, and even before the wedding starts, you hear this, how in the world? and it was coming from my side of the family. <laughs> we get married, we have a few children. Our lives are great. Their lives are great, but then... One day, Trina finds a lump in her left breast. Breast cancer. Six years after that diagnosis, me and my two little boys walked up to mommy's casket. And for two years, my heart didn't beat. If it wasn't for my faith in God, I, I wouldn't be standing here today. If it wasn't for those two little boys, there would have been no reason for which to go on. I was completely lost. That was rock bottom. You know what sustained me? The wisdom of a third grade dropout. The wisdom of a simple cook from California Maritime Academy. We're at the casket in College Station, Texas. I'd never seen my dad cry. Big, strong man. There are several alumni that remember Riggs that are here. We've been sharing stories all weekend. But this time I saw my dad cry. That was his daughter. Trina was his daughter, not his daughter-in-law. And I'm right behind my father, about to see her for the last time on this earth. And my father shared three words with me that changed my life right there at the casket. It would be the last lesson he would ever teach me. He said, son, you keep standing. No matter what, you don't give up. I learned that lesson from a third grade dropout who was a cook at Cal Maritime, who said, boy, you keep standing, no matter what. I stood, and a miracle took place. A couple of years later, my heart started to beat again. I'm talking in a group about like this when all of a sudden I spot the finest woman I've ever met in my life again. <laughs> First thing Janet did after we got married was she adopted those little boys, fulfilling Trina's last wish that her babies not go through life without a mommy. And then we decided to do something really bright. We thought 16, 17 years ago, and that was have more children. It's worked out lovely. And I'm honored to tell you that we had more boys. I have four boys from 34 years old all the way down to my daddy's youngest grandson, 
who's here with me this weekend, Joshua Rigsby, sitting on the front row right there. And what a story this is, folks. Not your ordinary commencement speech. I would have remembered this one. Son, you keep standing. Remember Denzel Washington, fall forward. His great commencement speech, fall forward. Dr. Rigsby makes this final point, and it's more salient than any of his previous words. And again, this is a commencement speech at California State University Maritime, and Dr. Rick Rigsby's Lessons from a Third Grade Dropout is, well, it's a book about his dad. Let's take a listen. Let me take you back to two days before Trina died. No hair because of chemotherapy, cadets. A tummy pooched out because of a liver no longer working. She weighed about 75 pounds. I'm in the kitchen so I can keep an eye on her in the family room. She's surrounded by pillows. Our then youngest son, Andrew, walks up with a shirt that he wants mommy to fold. And this is what I hear from Trina. Andrew, mama, not always gonna be there to help you. She was saying goodbye. And I was so moved, I waited for Andrew to leave and I walked over and I sat next to her on the couch. And as clearly as I'm talking to you today, these were some of her last words to me. She looked me in the eye and she said, it doesn't matter to me any longer how long I live. What matters to me most is how I live. How you living? How you living? Every day ask yourself that question, how you living? Here's, here's what a cook would suggest, that you would not judge, that you would show up early, that you'd be kind, that you'd make sure that that servant's towel is huge and used, that if you're gonna do something, you do it the right way. That, that, that cook would tell you this, that it's never wrong to do the right thing, that how you do anything is how you do everything. And in that way, you will grow your influence to make an impact. In that way, you will honor all those who have gone before you, who have invested in you. It is with great honor that I say all your life, look in those unlikeliest places for wisdom. Enhance your life every day by seeking that wisdom and asking yourself every night, how am I living? May God richly bless y'all. Thank you for having me here. And what a speech. Dr. Rick Rigsby's story, his father's story, his bride Trina's story. How are you living? Good question to ask every day to yourself and all of your loved ones. All of their stories here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and now it's time for a segment by Jesse. 
And you never know what you're going to get when Jesse does it. And this one's just called More Cowbell. We're high up in the Swiss Alps, and that sound that you're hearing is a herd of cows wearing cowbells. The cowbell was originally intended to make livestock easier to locate if they wandered off. Different bells have different specific sounds to identify important characteristics of the animals, such as age, sex, and specific herd identification. It is difficult to pinpoint when exactly the use of cowbells began, but the earliest examples of truly recognizable cowbells date back to the Iron Age. Just as soon as they were made, cowbells were used for music in sub-Saharan Africa. Although cowbells first appeared in American hillbilly music in the 1920s, they've also been used as an instrument in more recent popular music. The intro and ending to the 1958-track Heartbeat by the American artist Buddy Holly, a USA minor hit which reached number 82 in the Billboard Hot 100, is quite possibly the first use of the cowbell in pop music. Heartbeat, why do you miss when my baby kisses me? Even Jimi Hendrix used a little cowbell in Stone Free. And who could forget the cowbell in Lowrider? God, this is really a good song. Arguably, the most famous cowbell of them all can be found through the entire track of Blue Oyster Cult's Don't Fear the Reaper. Released as a single, it was their biggest hit, charting at number 12 in 1976. Now, you probably know where I'm heading with this to the pinnacle of cowbell fame in modern history. On April 8th of 2000, the comedy sketch known as More Cowbell aired on Saturday Night Live featuring Will Ferrell and Christopher Walken. After a series of staggering defeats, Blue Oyster Cult assembled in the recording studio in late 1976 for a session with famed producer Bruce Dickinson. And luckily for us, the cameras were rolling. Um, Bruce, could you come in here for a second, please? That, that was going to be a great track. Guys, what's the deal? Uh, are, are you sure that was sounding okay? I'll be honest, fellas, it was sounding great, but I could have used a little more cowbell. <laughs> this is one of the best SNL sketches of all time. Will Ferrell's acting was so over the top that Christopher Walken, Jimmy Fallon, Horatio Sands, and Chris Kattan were all trying desperately to hide their laughter on stage with very little success. I got a fever! And the only prescription 
It's more cowbell. Thank you, Bruce. We asked Blue Oyster Cult's drummer, Albert Bouchard, who is now a music teacher in New York City, how the cowbell made it into Don't Fear the Reaper. Ironically, it was similar to what happened in the skit, okay? It was, we had put a whole bunch of uh, overdubs on the, on the song, and one of them was um, uh, Randy Brecker. Put a, the, he put a flugelhorn part on it, or a trumpet or something, in the, in the middle part, the... That part. So, uh, and we didn't like it. Nobody, nobody in the group liked it, you know. And so, uh, erase that track. So I said, "Hey, I want to do, I want to do a triangle in that part. That's what I want. I really, I hear a triangle in my head." And they're like, and the the uh, one of the producers. There was three. There was Sandy Perlman, Murray Krugman, and David Lucas. David Lucas was a jingle producer, and he produced. Uh, a lot of AT&T, reach out, reach out and touch someone, or uh, it's the Pepsi generation. I don't know if you, you're too young. But anyway, these were big uh, uh, ads back, and uh, he was a madman. So uh, he said, uh, okay, you can put the triangle on it, but try a cowbell. I just want to hear a cowbell. And I said, why? You think that, it, is the tempo not steady enough? And he goes, no, don't. This tempo is fine. It's, I just want to hear that sound. I said, okay. So I play it, and I'm like, nah, it's not working. And he's like, oh, well, put some tape around it. So I put some tape around it. And he's like, he's like, yeah, yeah, that's it. I said, I don't know. Let me try a, be- a beater. So I used like a timpani mallet. And, and everybody's like, yes, that's it. That's it. So it's funny that, uh, you know, that Will Ferrell, because he wrote the skit, and it's funny that he even noticed it because it was mixed very low. You don't even really notice it in the track, you know. But the last time I checked, we don't have a whole lot of songs that feature the cowbell. I gotta have more cowbell, baby. More Cowbell has its own Wikipedia page, remixes, tributes, and endless reenactments. It also has its very own app. I could have used a little more cowbell. If you go to Amazon right now, you can actually find cowbells with more cowbell printed on them. There's more cowbell shirts. Stickers, magnets, posters, beer cozies, coffee cups, hoodies, infant clothing, license plate frames, cell phone covers, pet clothing, wall murals, keychains, tote bags, cake decorations, mouse pads. I even found a more cowbell frisbee. And that's just on Amazon. Want some women's underwear for your wife with more cowbell printed on it? More cowbell! They've got that too. Do you want an SNL Christopher Walken more cowbell duvet cover? Those are available too. And I don't even know what a duvet is. More cowbell pillows. More cowbell clocks. You get the picture. This humble little instrument has made quite an impact on American culture. Pretty impressive for a piece of metal that was originally intended to help keep track of livestock. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. I got a fever. And the only prescription is more cowbell. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell every kind of story here on the show. 
and sometimes stories from our affiliates. And sometimes some tough stories, and this one is a tough one, but so many families in America grapple with the issue of addiction. And his story comes from Benton Harbor, Michigan, our affiliate WSJM 94.9 FM, and the show 26 at 6. And it's the story of Misty Colette, a woman who, starting at a very young age, faced the disease of addiction. My earliest memory, I was probably about four years old. Throughout my childhood, I I witnessed a lot of um, alcohol um, abuse, physical abuse, um, and a lot of codependency in my, my home. At four years old, I can remember just being filled with anxiety, just not feeling safe at all. I could usually tell how safe I was about with the amount of alcohol that was around me. I knew, you know, if there was whiskey, that it was going to get bad. If it was liquor, you know, beer, it wouldn't get so bad. But alcohol was just a big part of the uh, destruction in my childhood. I knew both of my parents loved me. I just didn't know why the, the alcohol always had to be a part of, you know, our family. Um, my dad was an alcoholic, and my mom had bits with alcohol, um, but she could, you know, stay sober for three or four years, and then she'd relapse. But my dad was, as long as I can remember, he's always drank. You know, when I was four years old, um, I remember sitting up on my mom's couch with her, and I would see her, you know, beat up a lot. And I knew that if her face was bruised, that her body was even worse. So I learned at a very young age to smile. And like my addiction at that age when I was younger was taking care of my mom to make sure she was okay. I didn't want anything to happen to her. And my dad, there was something like my father would see me and light up, you know, and I felt like I could control his anger for some reason. And now I know that I I couldn't, but I felt that responsibility as a kid. I felt like if I could just make everything okay, that my mom would be safe and my dad wouldn't be so angry. But it was the alcohol and the, um, you know, same disease that I have, he had. And I just witnessed a lot of uh, abuse on my mom's part, you know, my sisters left really early um, because they went through a lot of the abuse. I was never hit or anything by my father, but I witnessed some brutal beatings with my mom. And that was the one thing, like I could remember laying next to her as she slept and I would pray and cry out to God like I'd hold my mom and I'd just ask him not to take her from me. And like somehow I... That was my biggest fear when I was younger was losing my mother and I didn't know that would become part of my reality later on in life that I would lose both of my parents. You know, she taught me she taught me how to be strong, I guess. I didn't really know the the depth of that strength. Um I couldn't imagine going through what she went through. To have that pressure as a kid and not know what to do with it. I was the the youngest out of my sisters and, and brothers. I didn't grow up with my sisters in the home. They left before I could be older. So I kind of, I was the one that was dealing with all that and seeing all that. 
and trying to be a kid at the same time. <laughs> and uh, I learned very quickly that you shut down, you push forward, and you smile. And that was the one thing that, like, at four years old, I had all these secrets, you know, and it it turned into something more as I grew and I didn't, I didn't realize that would be the, the trauma um, or part of the trauma that would start my life out like that. My relationship with my dad, he was a very strong personality in our home. Um, he was one of the nicest, most charming people you'd meet when he was not using. Um, when he was using, he was a lot different. He made me strong it seemed like the more tough or the more angry or mean that I was maybe that we could connect more and it was he always told me you know Dotsons don't cry um you know you can't be you're not you're not gonna cry about this you know that's a coward move or so I I grew up thinking like I have to be strong. I can't cry. You know, this is no matter how bad it hurts. I have to, I have to, to be a Datsun. You know, and the Datsun name in my family was like this power that somebody had. And I realize now, like I was a kid, you know, and uh, I would do things to to connect with my dad. I learned a lot of, I guess, survival from him. It, he could see me, and he would light up. And so I took that on as I could control his emotions. Or, for example, like if my mother, him, and I went somewhere, anxiety would start before I even hit the car because it was a closed space. And I knew that if my dad was drinking, that my mom was probably going to get the brunt end of whatever set him off. So I would try my best to, like, just talk, and he'd sing, and I'd... I'd laugh, and we we would do, like, some family things. Those are the good memories I have. Very few in between because of the disease of addiction was so rampant through him. I didn't get much time with my parents, but the first 10 years, he was in and out of prison a lot, and it seemed like if we weren't running from him, we were running with him. That's how I grew up. It was very unpredictable. I would go to sleep at night and think, is this going to be the night that I lose my mother? I could tell in his eyes when his eyes would change when he was angry and the littlest things would set him off. And my mom was a very quiet person. She was a very sweet person and she tried her best, I can say, to make things okay. And I learned a lot of that from her. She could be beat to death and still smile, and she'd protect. I remember, like, riding the bus when I was in grade school, and I would hear kids talking about going home or what they were going to do over the weekend. And I would close my eyes, and I would pretend like that was my family. Most of the time when I would come home, I would find a bad scene. I grew up like that. Anxiety 
that I now, I deal with it today, but it's nowhere near what it was then. I grew up with fear, I guess. I loved my dad, but I feared him. It changed who I was as a kid. It changed me. I don't care who you are, you know. You can be from the wealthiest family or from the most poverty-stricken family. But the environment and what you communicate in, it can either strengthen your child or it can change them. And mine changed me. I was 10 years old when my dad passed. My dad was, like I said, you know, an abusive person when he was drinking. And he had been clean for like three months and he had just gotten out of prison. My mom and I had moved to Mississippi. She had her own little business going, you know, we were doing real well. And that's about the time, you know, my dad would come back in and my mom had boundaries at this time, trying to, you know, raise me and keep this little business going. And she didn't, she let me see my father, but she didn't want him to live with us. And that was a big step for her because, you know, she was always trying to fix him or trying to make everything seem okay so he would be okay. She ended up letting him go in on this little business with her and he went to go get a load of produce. And the day I remember him leaving to go pick up produce was, it was a school day. And he had came to our house and he was gonna, he was saying goodbye to me. And I remember waking up, it was probably seven, seven fifteen in the morning. And I remember waking up with my dad there and he told me, well, baby girl, I'm going to get some produce and I'll see you in about two weeks. And I remember giving him a hug and him kissing me on the head and saying that he'll see me later. And for some reason, I told him he wouldn't. Like I, I knew for some reason, it just, I knew that would be the last time I saw him. And when we come back, more of Misty Colette's story brought to us by the folks at Benton Harbor, Michigan, our affiliate. W. <clears throat> and when we come back, more of Misty Colette's story here on Our American Story. This is Our American Stories, and we've been listening to Misty Colette's story. She shared it with us and our affiliate in Benton Harbor, Michigan, WSJM 94.9, in the show 26 at 26. Let's pick up where Misty last left off. As he left, um, I went to school. I didn't think anything about it. You know, it was just kind of like a regular thing. A few days passed, and everything was just like a normal day. I guess the day that he came back with the produce and stuff, I hadn't seen him. I hadn't seen my mom that day. I had went to school, and I was walking home from school that day, and I felt anxiety like I had never felt it before. And it started in my feet, and it went all the way up through my throat. And I remember the closer I got to my house, something was telling me not to go. And so 
I stopped at my sister's friend's house, which was two houses down from my house. And I asked her friend, I said, can I sit here for a little while? I just need, you know, to be here. And she was like, well, sure, you know. She let me in and I watched TV and had like a snack and it got later and later and I didn't, I wasn't leaving, you know, and she said, Misty, you know, it's it's getting late. Why aren't you going home? And I said, I can't. And she said, well, why? And I was shaken and I said, I just feel like somebody's going to die. And she kind of like grabbed me and said, why would you ever say something? You know, I didn't know why. And the next thing I remember, I was going like into the hallway, into the kitchen. And it was almost like a flash. And I already saw it before it happened, kind of like in inside. I felt it. And the next thing that I remember at the time was hearing a car pull up and there was people screaming and I I was like that's my mom and my sister I could hear them and I could hear people yelling and I looked over at my sister's friend and I said I told you something bad's gonna happen about that time I heard somebody scream and I heard five gunshots if you've ever been in a hurricane and like the wind is whirling and that's how I felt like Everything was spinning and everything was out of control. And I thought right then that he killed my mother. And I remember hearing that. And I remember just grabbing my hair and like, pull, and like trying to pull it out. And I was just losing it. The next thing I know, my sister comes running through the door and she was covered in blood. And I grabbed I grabbed my my hair and whatever else I could just grab and like my legs went, went out from under me and I thought right then you know he killed my mom my worst fear and my sister was yelling at me when she came in and I said she's dead isn't she he killed her he killed my mom she said no misty she killed him like I said alcohol was still accessible um to me, uh, after my father was shot, you know, there was a lot of um, media. There was a lot of, it's like I was in so many places at that time, uh, emotionally and um, physically also, because I, you know, when my mom was going through this court stuff, I was kind of moved around and she was trying to keep me safe. However, you know, the, the alcohol I had a sister that was an alcoholic and so she there was always alcohol in my home and I just at 10 years old I got in the cooler and I got you know my first beer and I drank when everybody else was drinking and it was almost like I was ready for something when I was and after all that you know and I it's like at 10 years old, I lost my mind, kind of. And, uh, um, but that was my first drug was alcohol. It kind of went on from there. Um, marijuana, 
you know, was a factor. And I had a lot of friends that were older and, you know, my house had a lot of uh, attention because of, you know, the things that had happened there, um, the shooting and, you know, people were real interested in what, you know, my life was about. And um, I was the only house on the block with the, the yellow caution ribbon around my house. And so a lot of the older kids, you know, I would smoke pot and stuff with them. Let me go back to to my mom. My mom taught me about Jesus. You know, she was the one that taught me that's where my strength is going to come from. And I remember like being a kid and I would hear her read the Bible out loud and she would tell me, you know, Misty Dawn, this is this is going to be your safe spot throughout your life. Like this is something you can always go back to and find hope. And she taught me that, you know, and that was something that carried me through everything I've ever been through in my life. That's something I've leaned on. And that was the one seed she planted in me that that's why I'm here today. My mom found out a couple months after my dad had passed that she was terminally ill. And they gave her three months to live. I remember sitting down on the floor when she told me she was brushing my hair bent down and said the doctors gave me three months to live I said but what if they know <laughs> she kind of explained what cancer was and what kind she had and I didn't really know how to take that I kind of felt everything in me kind of disappear for a minute if that makes sense and like I was just sitting there but my soul was somewhere else and I remember looking at her and she said I don't want you to be scared you know she said because God might have different plans so she was always that light my mom would never hurt anybody and she faced a lot of depression and she went through turmoil the whole time after my dad died Um, so I would come in from school and I'd I'd see her in the dark, you know, and she'd hear him beating at the walls, and it was a lot. But about a year and a half after my dad died, I was using alcohol and marijuana a lot. I basically tried to stop going to school because I didn't want to lose my mom while I was at school. And how messed up it is that the night before that she died, I was, I was close to 12 years old at that time, and I remember her in her last stages of cancer. She was in her little bed, and she was counting down the days on the calendar. And I remember, like, walking into her room, and I said, what are you doing? She said, uh, I don't think that I'm going to make it through this month. And she said, no, talk to me a little bit about what heaven was like, and how she didn't want me to be scared. And throughout all this, she was trying to find me a safe home, but nobody would take me. So I had to, when she, the day she died, my sister was my closest relative. And when we come back, we're going to bring you more of Miss D's story. And it's a tough story, folks, but it affects so many families in this country. And that's why we tell these stories. They're not all upbeat. Not every story can be redemptive. And not every story can be positive. Sometimes life gets tough. The walls close in. 
and boy did they close in on Misty Collette. Her story, the story of so many people in this country struggling at the hands of addiction, here on Our American Story. This is Our American Stories, and we return to the last segment of Misty Collette's story. She lost both of her parents and now finds herself in an endless cycle of addiction. Let's pick up where we left off. The night before she died, I I wanted to go out with my friends, and I remember her asking me to help her to the bathroom, and I wouldn't help her. I said, you know, have my sister do it, and I was already using at that point and I remember telling her I'll be back later and I went to walk out the door and she said Misty Misty Dawn you know she called me baby girl and she said I love you more than anything in this world she passed away that that next morning and I was woke up by the hospice waking me up and telling me um, I needed to say my goodbyes to her and I was still drunk when they woke me up the day sh- she died I remember standing over and you know my sister told her she could go in peace that I would be taken care of and no sooner than you know they put her in the hearse I remember my sister looking at me and saying we can't do this like I can't handle you and I said I think we can like I'll do everything I can to make things better in my mind I figured if I could just make it better (laughs) everything would be okay that day that she died I remember my best friend who was so really close to my mom I remember looking at her and as they were pulling my mom out of the house she drops to the ground and this like screaming and crying and I could not figure out why I couldn't do that. Like, my mom had just died, you know, and not even two years before that, I lost my dad. I couldn't cry for neither one of them, and I couldn't figure out why. And it was, you know, that survival mode. It was embedded in in me from the time I was old enough to walk till at that age. And instead of going back into my house and grieving, I just went out and I got really messed up. My sister ended up kicking me out that day and I have never been back home since. So I was kind of left to the streets. And I've been down alleys, probably angels went and fly down. But I know that, you know, that seed that my mom planted in me is what's kept me going. And I figured no matter what happens, I've got to get through it, because what are you going to do? You're going to adapt, and you're going to push forward. And I didn't realize that 
I was addicted <laughs> at that age. I just thought, you know, this is this is how it is. This is what people do. I I didn't see anything different. You know, I wasn't taught anything different. I knew drugs were bad. I knew alcohol was bad. But what was it really hurting? You know, that was my thought process is like, I feel better. I can deal with things. And slowly but surely, I was being sucked into that addiction. It was nothing but destruction. I had done... I had experimented with many drugs, but the first time that I tried methamphetamine, it's unexplainable. It's basically all chemicals. Um, that is, it's man-made, very dirty drug. I started using that when I was 15, after a battle with crack cocaine. 17, I was full-blown into meth, really heavy. 16, 17, you know, it was just part of my life. It was a lifestyle. It was in everything that I did. And once I tried that drug, it... It grabbed a hold of me and took me places I don't ever want anyone to have to go. I got pregnant with my son, and I swore on everything that I loved that I would not ever put him through what I went through. I'd never raised him in an environment that had was unsafe. When they handed him to me, I looked into his eyes and I said, you know, this is my purpose in life, and I will be the best mom I can be. Within a year later... I was full-blown into meth again. And as much as I loved him, I didn't know how to stop. So for the first 10 years, he didn't know me clean. He never knew a clean mother. Thank God for my mother-in-law, for his grandmother, because if it wasn't for her and his grandpa, I'd probably lost him a long time ago. You know, I had to lose something I couldn't live without in order to change. I got arrested at 31, November 21st, 2011. I remember waking up that morning and I had laid with him on the floor the night before because I just felt like like I, I couldn't hold him close enough. And I had prayed a couple days before I got arrested for God just to help me because I couldn't keep going anymore. And I remember looking in the mirror, you know, and the way Peyton would look at me sometimes, he, I could see it in him that something was not right and I was causing his memories to become nightmares just like I my mine were so when I got arrested they took me um and put me in the police car and I remember looking at his dad and saying you have to make this go away like I need to go get my kid and I just need to go on about my business let's you just take this and I'll I'll go on they took me to Cass County Jail and they told me that my son was in CPS custody and I remember feeling like my whole world was gone (laughs) but it was exactly what I needed in order to change and once I got that chance in Cass County Jail you know I sat there and they offered me three months boot camp or three years prison I said I can do the prison time I'm already locked up inside here you know inside my heart and I've been in prison my whole whole life like that's not going to do anything for me I want to know how I can get help. And I just need help. And they offered me a program, Family Treatment Court. And through Family Treatment Court, I got I got to do woodlands. And I didn't know that at the time that was funded by United Way. 
IOP, um, it's uh, enhanced outpatient treatment. Um, it's very intense. You're there three days a week, you know, three hours a day. I was put in a sober living facility in Dwajak and through that, you know, the programs and stuff. The first time I stepped in IOP or into the to Woodlands, I felt like I didn't know what to expect, but once I got in there and I was sitting around that table and I started learning about addiction and I started learning about the disease and what it does to your brain, the services, you're sitting there and you're, you're learning that you're not just this messed up individual. Like you literally have something going on in your brain and there's so many factors that lead up to that. Before I came in there, I just thought that I was a horrible person, a bad mother, you know, that I had, I was just tainted. And the support that I got through IOP and to be able to go in there and tell my story and have answers to why I think like I do and how I have a chance to change that dysfunctional thinking, I grabbed a hold of that with both hands and I knew that was a safe place. And for one time in my life, I knew I, I was safe. And if I could find that safe zone, then I could teach my son how to be safe. Those services not only helped me, but everything I've learned in there, I've taken to my son. You know, at 16, he's faced with with a lot and you know in high school and people smoking weed and stuff and he's he's been so present in him and his dad's and my recovery he is smart about what he does and you know you have the one-on-ones with woodlands you have the um the IOP all of those things they factor into getting rid of that shame and guilt their way of teaching you it is it's pretty amazing because you don't feel shameful. You feel like, you know, I'm not the only one dealing with this and I can come in here and I can ask questions and I can um, finally get some answers and maybe have a chance to change my life. I'm doing exactly what I was taught <laughs> through those services. I am actually able to go out and just love on people and give them hope, share my story and hear theirs and I'm a peer recovery coach with uh, Woodlands today and I do a IOP group the same group that I was part of I now get to see on the other side and and just share my experience my people are the most courageous people that I know it takes faith and the courage that comes along with being able to share your story. I, I gain my strength from them because they're letting me into their life. Yeah, I, get, I just get to, I get to love on people all day. <laughs> and thank you for that story, Misty Colette. Her story, so many American family stories. And for all the folks who've given the United Way or Salvation Army or all of these other groups, now you know what happens to your money and what can come of your generosity. Thank you to WSJM 94.9 FM in Benton Harbor for providing this story, our affiliate 
in Michigan. And for all of you listening, share your stories with us. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. We'd love to hear them and then share them with the rest of the country. While you're at it, sign up for our newsletter, five of our best stories each week, OurAmericanNetwork.org. Send the link to friends, too. The antidote to all the ugly things happening in this country, all the bad stories. Good ones here, too. Misty Collette's story here on Our American Stories.